Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the three epistles of John and the epistle of Jude. This lesson is a real treat. Uh, These epistles from John, the, this first one especially, it's, it's a gem in the scriptural canon. In fact, one of these chapters in here, chapter 4, it's, it's on my, my short list. At the beginning of my scriptures, I, I have a list that says, on a bad day, read. And then I have seven chapters of scripture that for me just really feed my soul. Well, First John chapter 4 happens to be one of those chapters on this list. So I'm excited. And, and chapter one through five, all of them, this is a, a powerful, uh, powerful epistle from one of the Savior's closest apostles, the, the beloved apostle, John. In fact, there's, there's uh, some incredible connections that you're going to find as you study First John between what you read here and what you read in his gospel, especially the last few chapters. So John 13 through 17, a lot of those same themes, they're going to get picked up here and spoken of in, in powerful ways. So this is, a, this is an incredible week that we get to study. So two major themes you could look for is how God is defined as the God of love and the God of light. And you, you find those with the markers of this is the message. So in your own scriptures, if, if you were to mark verse 5 of chapter 1, this then is the message, it says, which ye have heard of him, that God is light. And then you can cross-reference verse 5 with chapter 3, verse 11, where he uses that same marker, indicator, by saying, for this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then all of chapter 4 is about God being love. So the two messages, the takeaways, as Taylor pointed out, is how God is light and God is love. And this whole study that we're going to make today is building that case. And you're going to see, as you jump in, that there is also an opposite to light. It's called darkness. And he's going to talk about it in here. And there's an opposite to love. And he's going to show those as well. Scriptures do this all the time. They'll set light and dark, good and evil, right next to each other because it enhances your, your ability to discern the difference between the two and to be able to make that judgment of how we want to now live our life and react and respond. So, as we jump in, there are a lot of questions that are going to be answered for, for people in our day who are struggling with various trials, setbacks, temptations, 
oppositions that if you will bring those struggles to the forefront of your mind and ask the Lord to help you get principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ more clearly understood to help you deal with those struggles, those opposition, this is this is one of those books where it's it's low-hanging fruit. It's very easy to, to try that exercise. Let's begin in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. I was actually thinking about these two themes. If you combine these two things, light and love equals that last word there, life. And notice how John is tying into how the Gospel of John begins as well. They use this word beginning, it's like Genesis, and it's all centered on Jesus Christ. Even the creation was centered on the great Jehovah, the pre-mortal Jesus, who infuses the world with light and love, which brings life. It's a beautiful summation, Taylor. In fact, you'll notice in his verse 1 here how it correlates to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he opens up his first general epistle referring back to Jesus Christ as the Word, and in this case, the Word of life. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. And he's showing you the basis for his testimony, for his apostolic witness. He's not saying, I, I have a good feeling about Jesus Christ and his role or of his mission. He's telling you, look, the things that we're sharing, we've heard them, we've seen them with our eyes, we've looked upon them, our hands have handled him, the word of life. We have interacted with him in very tactile ways, and that's powerful. This, this, he's not saying, trust in our faith, he's saying, trust in our special witness. You can have faith in God because of things that we have experienced. It's a very different level. So he's heard, seen, touched. He could have included, I've also tasted. And when you partake of the sacrament, you are getting a regular witness of God's love. So uh, the only one we don't have is the smelling. So now you go to verse 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. He's alluding here to, it, among all of the things that you could apply this to, one of the key elements is the resurrection, the eternal nature of Christ's existence in the resurrected form. We, it, his life was manifested unto us. We've seen it and we bear witness. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now here is a very important uh, aspect of, of Scripture study is to recognize that the point of Scripture isn't just to teach us about the existence of God or the existence of Christ. That's wonderful. It's necessary to know that, but it's not sufficient. As if, 
God has nothing better to do than just exist. That is not the, the end game here. The end purpose of scriptures and of prophetic witness is to bear testimony not only of God's existence, but to show us God's attributes. Why? Not so that we can treat it as if deity is in a museum and we're passing through the museum and admiring all of God's goodness and grandeur and glory, but so that we can know how we can become more like them. And in, in this case, uh, there's, there's a beautiful talk that comes to mind. Uh, Sister Wendy Watson Nilsson, President Nilsson's wife, in that fireside that uh, President and Sister Nilsson did back in May 15th of 2022. I love this. She says, tonight I would like to talk with you about one question, one question that can change your life. This one question can increase your confidence, decrease your anxiety, motivate you, lift your mood and your sights, increase your productivity, increase your focus, focus and clarity of thinking, help you resist temptation. Let me just pause there. It's a long list of amazing promises, but you'll notice what Sister Nelson is doing there. She's not prepping us to learn about God's existence and stopping there. She's prepping us in ways that we can all become more like him. But first, we need to recognize who he is and what he's like, and then motivated and become motivated to become more like him. So, after this long list of things that this one question is going to do for us, she says, this one question can bring you joy, comfort, love, and peace. Now, some of you, like I, when I watched this fireside, a couple times, multiple times. I love this technique. She set us up and then she didn't tell us what the question was for quite a while. And it's not until uh, significantly into the talk that she finally gives the question and here it is. Her audience on that day was the young adults of the church. She says, here's the question. What would a holy young adult do? And you can fill in the blank with what would a holy youth or child or adult or grandma or grandpa or father or mother or whatever role you have, whatever calling you have, you could fill in the blank with what would a holy blank do. That's what scripture is, is doing, is it's helping us recognize who we have the capacity to become because of what we do. And so, as we go through this, I would invite you to keep Sister Nelson's inspired question at the forefront of your mind with your own roles filling in the blank. What would a holy blank do? So that we're not just reading words on a page, we're actually reading a handbook for how to know how to become more like the Word of life. This ties in exactly to what John was trying to message as well. Look at what he says in verse 4. And these things write we unto you. Why? We don't write just because we have lots of free time and we really like to create beautiful literature. Why are we writing? That your joy may be full. And it ties into all these things we've been talking about. Remember, 
The purpose of scripture is not to overwhelm you, not to feel you, make you feel less than, not to confuse you. Those things sometimes happen. The purpose is when we fixate on Jesus Christ, that he is love and light and life, it helps us when we act on those truths, when we know them, to have joy. Which, I, before we jump into this next set of uh, verses here, the thought comes that often when we aren't feeling joy, when our joy is not full, when we're struggling, when we feel dark and gloomy, it, it's often, not always, but it's often an instance or a situation where our arrows are turned inward. For instance, if I go to church, this Sunday, and I say, hmm, what can the bishop do for me? What can the Relief Society president do for me? What can so-and-so do for me? How can the speakers bless me? How can the music bless me? Those are, they're, they're not bad questions, but they're all turned inward. What, what would happen if instead of thinking, what am I going to get out of church this Sunday? What difference would it make if I said, how am I going to bless other people when I go to church this Sunday? Who can I find to shine light into the dark corners of their life? Who can I find that probably needs love and to feel the love of God today? It can be, the speakers can be the, the least prepared, the lessons can be the most halting ever, and it's okay because what am I going to get out of that experience? It's not things I take from people, it's light and love that I give to people. And it's going to be an edifying worship experience for me this Sunday. And I'm not, I'm not an object waiting to be acted upon, as Elder Bednar always refers to. I'm actually an agent saying, I want to be more like the Savior Jesus Christ, and he went into situations looking for ways to love God and love others. And if I do that more, my arrows are turned heavenward and outward, I am going to have my joy be full more often than if I go in waiting to be acted upon by some inspired people to, to make me feel the light and the love of God. Versus seeking to enact the light and love. In fact, John then builds on this. He says in verse 5, which we've referenced already, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now notice this little word here, then, second word of the verse, he's building on what he said before. We want to help you experience joy Therefore, or then, this is the message. We're going to witness and teach you about light and love so that as you know who Jesus is, you can enact that and share it with others and thus feel the joy. So now he's going to expand on that with examples set in couplet format using if but if. We could say if then or else. So he gives, he starts in verse 6 with a, a bad example. If, so this is a conditional statement. It's not, it's not a prophecy, it's not a guarantee. 
it's a condition. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, then we lie and we do not the truth. So, by adding the little word then between darkness and we, it, it becomes this if-then, this, this logical flow. If, if we're actually walking in darkness but we say we have fellowship with him, then we're lying and we do not the truth. But, so here's the opposite, but if, again, here's a condition, we walk in the light as he is in the light, now add the word then, then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. That is a powerful invitation and we're not walking in random light made by electricity, we're walking in the light, the light that he's introduced us to, which is God. God is light. We're, we're walking in the light of the Lord. And you, you see the promise there that he can cleanse us from all sin. And then in the next one, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Once again, you could add the word then. If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us because that doesn't fit for anybody except for Christ. In if, verse 9, you could say, but if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you've often said this, how much is all? That would be a hundred percent. And then in this particular case, he actually sandwiches that good example between the bad example and another bad example to, to repeat this idea. So, so chapter 10, or sorry, verse 10 is very similar to verse 8. If, ye, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Which means no life, no light, no love, because he is the word. So, can you see John pleading with us? Can you at least begin. So, Sister Nelson's question, what would a holy fill-in-the-blank disciple do? One of the first things that a holy disciple of Jesus Christ would do is acknowledge the fact that we have sin, that we aren't perfect, that we need the Savior. And then look at what John does now in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I, I love this, this it's this familial uh, approach to John talking to his audience in the first century, and I'll just speak for myself. Selfishly, I like putting myself in John's audience, and I like picturing John, the beloved apostle of Jesus Christ, speaking directly to me, little old Tyler Griffin, fill in the blank with your name, and seeing myself as one of his little children in, in this symbolically adoptive sense. Yeah, the sense of stewardship. We have this word also in the word bishop. The Greek word is episkopos, one who oversees. And it's almost like this loving father and mother who oversee the raising of their children in a place of love and light and protection. 
That's what God expects in families. And coming from John, I love this idea of the episcopos, uh, this one who sees. Here's John talking to his audience back then as well as to today saying, look, I know you're struggling with some things and it's okay. Acknowledge that. Uh, Sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, notice this subtle change that Joseph Smith made in verse 1. He said, but if any man sin and repent, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, why can John speak in such definitive ways and with such uh, faith in the hope? Verse 2, he, speaking of Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a complex word. Propitiation is not a word we typically use. I don't typically use that word in English, but in the, the Latin, it means a, a going forward and onward and onward. And it makes me think about how Jesus is always pressing forward as our faithful leader guiding us. So no matter what we might suffer, he is always ahead of us, preparing the way that we can overcome any kind of soiling that has happened on the path, that he can cleanse us from step to step, grace to grace. It's powerful when you, when you take that example, propitiation is going before us step by step, grace for grace. If you look at these next verses, they contain all of these faithful actions, these these light-filled, love-filled works that Christ has shown us how to do. Verse 3, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Are, are you recognizing this sounds an awful lot like the teachings in John chapter 13 through 17 again? If you love me, keep my commandments which is a phrase that's repeated in a variant throughout the Book of Mormon in particular where it says, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And it turns out the word propitiation and prosper both actually share a same common root word in Latin about moving forward. And it's interesting, the word prosper in the original sense in the Hebrew means to have God's spirit with you or to have his presence with you. So this is all tied in, that if you want to be cleansed from your sins, be in God's presence, and you're invited into his presence when you choose him by keeping his commandments. It's all very powerful and very quite simple. It, it is simple, and, and the Savior Jesus Christ showed us that example. Look at verse 5, whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So, this idea of if you love me, keep my commandments, that's not just with reference to us being a disciple of Christ. That's us trying to be like the Savior who showed us what that looks like. Because how many times do we get him going to the Father saying, what would thou have me to do? that will I do. He, 
Jesus Christ, the only perfect person who ever lived, he is always going to the Father to find out what God wanted him to do, and that's what he did. So now you see that that's the path he followed, so now we strive to just follow his example, not just in what he's saying, but in what he did. So what would a holy disciple of Christ do? A holy disciple of Jesus Christ would do all of these things that are listed in, in the scriptures, these good attributes, that are simply a reflection of Christ's light and love. From verse 4, he started with, he that saith. Verse 6, he that saith. Now we jump down to verse 9, he that saith. So you can see how John is setting up these, these analogies. There are different people who say this, and people who say this, and people who say this. Verse 9 is, he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness, even until now. Why? Because God is love and God is light, not just for you, but for the whole world. Remember verse 2? The ending part of verse 2 was, not only for your sins, but for the whole world. God is love and God is light for everybody who's willing to turn to him. And if you're having a difficulty with, with a neighbor or with a loved one or with an associate and you say, I love God and I hate that person, he's saying, nope, that doesn't work. Verse 10, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So the opposite of verse 10, he that loveth his brother is now found in verse 11. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. Did you catch that? If you hate your brother, you're in darkness. The two opposites of what God is, what we're striving to become, we, we actually uh, experience the opposites here. We walk in darkness, we know not whither we go, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And then he finishes this with verse 12, I write unto you little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Your sins aren't forgiven you because you're so good or because you've worked so hard. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And notice again, he said, little children. He's reminding us of, of our capacity to grow up in the gospel, but at this phase, he's, he's referring to little children. And you'll see it little children and young men in verse 13. You'll see little children in verse 18. You'll see little children in verse 28. He, he keeps reminding us that there's a lot of room for growth, development, maturation when it comes to, uh, to our discipleship and our growing up as children of God, children of the light, children of love. In Greek, there's a word called pedagogy, and it's related to, and that means to teach. And the word paida is a child. And the word pedagogy comes from the same word for a child. In fact, our word ped, like say a pedestrian, is somebody who walks by their feet because the word for child and teaching a child all have to do with feet, like they're people at your feet, they're younger. And the point here is that we are like little children being led in the pedagogy 
of Jesus Christ, who is the great teacher. And any one of us who have been asked to serve in the role of a teacher or a minister or a father or a mother, uncle, aunt, anybody who is in a position of influence for little children, people who are at the feet, our job is to raise them in the pedagogy of Jesus Christ, which is what we see John doing here. Now, that's not to assume that, that we're starting from ground zero. And, and he makes that very clear in verse 21. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. To me, th there are a lot of ways to interpret that verse, but one of the ways that I see John uh, talking to us is not to say, I'm going to assume that you don't know anything. In fact, he's speaking saying, I'm going to assume that you know this. I'm just going to remind you and try to motivate you to do the very things that you already know you need to do. So often when we go to church, we don't need to be taught what to do. So often we need to find inspiration, motivation to act, to do those things that we know we ought to do and to not do those things that we know we shouldn't do and to strive to become more like the Savior through those experiences. So let's conclude this chapter with 28 and 29. And now little children abide in him, remain with him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Don't you love this, this feeling of Jesus Christ being willing to take us as little children unto himself? When you, when you read the scripture accounts of Jesus saying, suffer the little children to come unto me, instead of just thinking of these little, little kids, picture yourself in John's context here as you and me being little children and the Savior is willing to adopt us, to become the symbolic father of our spiritual rebirth, to give us new life, to put his name upon us, because that's what fathers do. They give their name to their offspring, that we literally become, in this symbolic way, the offspring of Christ, that, that we allow him to become our adoptive uh, spiritual rebirth father, because then we have this capacity to grow up to become like him. And he opens chapter 3 with, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Or the children of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Again, our arrows aren't turned horizontally in this context looking for our identity. They're turned heavenward. We're accountable to God, not the world. We, we want to help the world. We'll, we'll work in this world. We live in the world, but we're accountable to our Father. And verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In my mind, I can see this beautiful analogy of a little child 
who, when a little baby's first born, you can say, hmm, I can see elements of his mother or he, he might have some traits of his father in him. But let's be honest, most little babies don't look very much like their parents yet. But as they grow and mature and develop, all of a sudden, some people say, wow, you look just like your mother or you look just like your father. Think about this. If we grow up as uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, we follow him in this pedagogy sort of a way on that path. When he appears, we will see him and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's this beautiful progression that is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you are getting discouraged because you're recognizing your flaws or your imperfections, or you're recognizing flaws and imperfections in leaders of the church or of your ward or in your family or in your friendship circles, instead of assuming there's, there's no hope, picture a little child growing up as you recognize, oh, there are some flaws, there are some weaknesses, there are some things that need to be worked on. What do we do? We work on them. We grow. We progress. We mature. And increasingly, over time, not just us, but everybody has this opportunity to become more like him so that when we do see him, we will be like him. And verse 3 says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he or Christ is pure. He's the source of this growth and development. This isn't something you and I have to do in isolation. The the scripture isn't, be therefore perfect and then come unto me. It's come unto me and be perfected in Christ. That's where you get that growth and development. So we've been talking about the light of Jesus Christ John makes his transition in verse 11 to the love of Jesus Christ. And he says, for this is the message that we heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And of course, Jesus fully modeled this for us. So he's going to show us how do you actually exercise that uh, agency in a way that will help you grow up in the not just the light, but now also the love of God. Look at verse 17. Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So, So he's making this comparison. God who has all things, this abundance of of all things in his hand, and he gives them to his children those of us who have so much less. And now he's comparing it to us in an earthly perspective, some who have so much, and if they shut up those those possessions and don't give them out, how dwelleth the love of God in him? We're not becoming more like God if we turn our arrows inward. What can I get? What can I benefit from? in this world or from this relationship or from this church or from this organization, whatever it may be. We we pull these things in. Look at verse 18. My little children, 
let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Joseph Smith made a small uh, adjustment in verse 18, neither in tongue only. So it's not just, oh, we're going to talk nice about this, but he says, but in deed and in truth. What I've thought about recently is, should I be defining myself as a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ, or should I live in such a way that other people define me that way? And it's an interesting um, small nuance that I realized, actually, I should be living in such a way that other people would define me that way, instead of me simply just verbalizing, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, we do need to declare those things, but I think the invitation here is let our way of living be the message. That's powerful. So, look at this fun little play on words in verse 17 and 18. In 17, you get the need listed. Somebody is lacking in something that you have in abundance. Well, then you jump down to verse 18, and he uses this word, indeed and in truth. So, how do we fill the need? Through good deeds, through the giving of ourselves. It's not just giving money. It's not just giving food. Those are important, and we need to keep doing those. But it's in giving of our very life. And you'll notice, if you want your love to increase for somebody, probably the, the worst thing you can do is to withhold your, your life-giving substance and all of these things that God has blessed you with. That would not help your love increase. If you want love to increase, you generally sacrifice for people. The greater the sacrifice, the greater your capacity to love that person becomes. You look at Jesus Christ as the perfect example. He sacrificed everything at infinite levels. And how much does he love us? Infinitely. So if you're really struggling with somebody in a relationship, instead of focusing on what that person's doing poorly or doing inappropriately or how they're hurting you, what if you prayed and asked God to inspire you in ways that you could serve indeed that person and sacrifice things for them, watch what happens to your capacity to now love that person. What, what happens to that capacity? And how do you now see them? As you serve them, you're going to tap into more of what God feels for that person as well, which is love. And he wants to fill that person, just like you, with light. And that brings us into chapter 4, which is one of my favorite all-time chapters of any scripture, showing the attribute of God's love. Because if you want somebody who loved indeed, in everything that he did, everything that he says, it's, it begins and ends with, with God. Let's jump right into verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this 
is that spirit of antichrist or not being for Jesus. Wherever ye have heard that ye should come, and even now already this anti-Christian is in the world, this antichrist. Which for some of you, you're probably confused by, wait a minute, I, I don't understand what we just heard or what we just read there. So near the end of the first century, you have this doctrine. It's a heretic doctrine that has begun to come into the Christian church. It's going to take off in the second and third centuries, but it begins in that late first century in John's audience here, and it's the doctrine of docetism, this idea that Jesus Christ never fully experienced mortality. He was never enfleshed. He never had a body like you and I have a body. Yeah, the word docetism comes from the word to seem. It just seemed like he was a fleshy body, but actually was a mirage. He was just a spirit. And that, as you can see, John is making a strong claim. If you only think that Jesus just seemed to be a fleshy human, but really was only just a spirit, that's a very, very troubling doctrine. And it's antichrist in the sense that you aren't fully understanding the true identity of Jesus. If you don't know the full identity of Jesus, you can't adopt Jesus in your life. And so you can see how this, this is a, an example of where the Greek philosophy has now made its way into many of the members of the church. In, in these early times, and they're wrestling with this. They're saying, because the Greek philosophy is the body is, is bad, it's evil. The, the real thing is what you know, gnosis. It's, it's about your knowledge, and it's about your experiences of, of mental ascent. And so the flesh is bad, and therefore we can't have God taking on something that is so bad as our flesh. So they've now changed the truth to match their philosophy. The role of prophets is to help us avoid that kind of doctrinal drift, to adopt the philosophies of the world where we say, you know, it's popular opinion that X, Y, Z is, is the way things are, so we're going to now pull that in and we're going to change the gospel to match the world's view or the world's philosophy in this case. And so here's John pushing back very hard against that, that doctrine saying, no, Jesus did indeed come, he did become like us, and he was still a God of light and a God of love, and he can help us in our infirmities. He knows how to succor us. And now you get into the meat of this incredible doctrine. If, again, you can make up your own list of scriptures that, that resonate with your soul, but for me, when I'm struggling, when I feel inadequate, when I feel weak, I love turning to John 4 and starting in verse 7 and reading through the end, just reading it slowly and letting, sometimes it's, it's a powerful experience to just let scriptures wash over your soul. Listen to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. You'll notice the difference between these two statements. God is love versus God loves. One is a, a verb with the noun, so God loves. This is something God does. 
but this is something that God is. So you'll notice that the attributes of God are more than just actions. They're attributes, they're they're characteristics, they're his traits, it's who he is, it's part of him. And I want to be more like him, so how do I do that? I do that by exercising my faith in Christ to the point where I do the action, the verb form. I love God, I love people, not as the end goal, but that is the end goal. This is the means whereby I get to that. So I do the things that I read in the scriptures so that I can become more like what God is. Look at the power of verse 10 and 11. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. It's that, it's that comparison of picture the little brand new newborn baby. Mom and dad hold that little infant and they just love that little child. And you'll notice that that little child doesn't say, thank you, mom, for all that you did to give me life. Thank you, dad, for for helping to support this process. The baby does nothing but absorb the love that mom and dad give to that child. And then as that child grows, that child is experiencing, experiencing an inflow of love until it gets to a stage or an age, a capacity, where it can start to reflect some of that love, where it can actually start to mirror some of those uh, loving expressions that, that he or she has been receiving up to this point. And the older, more mature that child becomes, the greater his or her capacity becomes to love other people because they've experienced it. Look at verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. We have faith in him because he first had faith in us. We we learn how to follow him because he first showed us what it means to follow God. So now that we've gone to verse 19, let's go back and pick up a few more verses before that point to to fill in this blank. Look at verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. This dwelling in him and him in us, this is a a re-echo from what the Savior taught his apostles in the Last Supper and in the intercessory prayer in in John 17 specifically. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. That oneness, that dwelling in and with and among, these are themes that John taught very beautifully in his, in his gospel. And then one of my favorite sections here of this incredible chapter, verse 17 and 18. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, 
because as he is, so are we in this world. He's saying he wants us to have boldness. He doesn't want us to go into the judgment like the man in the parable of the talents who goes in fearful and saying, you're mean, you're a vengeful God, and you're going to smite me down. He wants us to go in with boldness, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and who Christ has helped us to become, that we don't go in alone to the presence of the Father. We go in with Christ as our advocate, the one who God sent, because God loves us. God doesn't want to punish us. He wants to save us, and the way he appointed to save us is through his perfect son. So we can go in with boldness, not brashness, not pride, not haughtiness, but with boldness, and that boldness is rooted in Christ. And then this beautiful line, there is no fear in love. You don't need to go into the judgment experience filled with fear, because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. And then that, that line that we've already used, we love him because he first loved us. Can you, in your mind's eye, picture that judgment experience as a court filled with love rather than a court filled with hatred and darkness and anger and frustration at how imperfect we are. Let's not have the focus be on our struggles. Let's have the focus be on Christ's perfection, and that will help fill us with God's love and make us more capable of then exercising that love until that day when we don't have to think about it anymore. It just becomes a spiritual reflex for us to love others because we have become more of that attribute that God has given to us. So we move into verses one and two. In fact, I'll just go right to verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Isn't it fascinating that he he finishes talking, I don't know how many times here he's repeated this idea of, if you really love me, then keep my commandments. That, that idea keeps coming up. And then what commandment does he mention? Verse 5, he, who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. It's this command to believe in God, have faith in him, and connect with him in a covenant relationship. And how does that begin? In baptism. And you see this beautifully taught in the Pearl of Great Price, in the Book of Moses, where Enoch talks about the three elements that are required to be able to be born into this life, water, blood, and the Spirit. And then he says those same three elements are required to be born again, to, be, to, to experience that spiritual rebirth, water, blood, and the Spirit. You get the, the baptism, the confirmation of the Holy Ghost, all made possible by the blood of the Lamb. As a, an interesting caveat in chapter 5, you get this 
fascinating set of two verses, seven and eight, that contain what is known as the Johannine comma. You can look this up. You can Google this, the Johannine comma. If you Google the phrase Johannine comma, you will find that it is one of the most widely recognized examples of an editorial insertion that we have in the Bible. Now, this is fascinating. We're sharing this not, not because it's good trivia, but because it's actually significant theologically, doctrinally speaking. Here's the, the quick background. Erasmus was the, the person who was tasked with writing the uh, manuscripts that are going to be used by the King James translators for making what we have here, our KJV, King James Version of the Bible. And he's, he has done two editions. Well, there's a group of people who come to Erasmus and say, you need to put in something that's more direct about the Trinity. And so they had identified verse 7 and 8 as the location to add this little insert, this insertion. Clarifications. And Erasmus says, I am not going to put it in unless I see a Greek text with those words. Well, shortly thereafter, they show up at his door with a manuscript. The ink was still probably drying on it. <laughs> a Greek manuscript with these words, and so Erasmus puts it into his third edition, which then makes its way into the King James Version of the Bible. Now, theologically speaking, this is significant. So, in verse 7, notice how it reads, for there are three that bear record, and after the word record, you could put a little open parenthesis because this is what begins the insertion that didn't exist in the first and second edition of the Textus Receptus, or any of the older uh, Greek manuscripts. These words didn't appear. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, close parenthesis. So, most of verse 7 and the first one and a half lines of verse 8 are all added into this third edition, but they didn't exist. So, the way that the older Greek manuscripts read, it says, for there are three that bear record, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one, which is beautiful doctrine combined with what Enoch's vision shares, that the water, the blood, and the spirit are the three elements that are appointed for uh, being necessary for human life to begin, as well as, same three elements, for spiritual life to be, to begin, to be born again. But with the insertion, it becomes this very Trinitarian feeling that says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So, this phrase that we have at the end of verse 7, and these three are one, is the most Trinitarian verse we have in Scripture. Now, look, we all know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are unified in one. But you can also understand that about 600 years ago, 500 years ago, there were people who had the motivation to have clarifying Scripture 
that would back up their specific way of understanding what that unity meant. And it's important for us to remember that we're, what we're not trying to do is to separate the Godhead, because never does Jesus in Scripture say, I and my Father are separate. He never once says that, but he also never says, I and my Father are the same, or he doesn't try to confuse us theologically or doctrinally. And I love that John's the one who gives us the intercessory prayer, and it's as clear as any scripture I can find anywhere in John 17 where he says, verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. So, the Savior is emphasizing the unity and the oneness of the Godhead and of us with the Godhead as well as with each other, not trying to separate us. We might conclude here that on this topic, there are things in the scriptures that sometimes are not 100% clear, and sometimes people speculate to try to make sense of things that they don't understand. When it comes to understanding God and the doctrine of God, we might just exercise some caution when we are speculating about doctrine or the nature of God and let prophets do their work to reveal things. It's the purpose of Scripture. And we're not trying to say that ancient past theologians and philosophers were just bad people. They did speculate. They wanted to understand the nature of God better, and so they spent a lot of time thinking and writing but speculating without any evidence about what it means to be one. And they came up with these different doctrines. And again, there's a reason they got to that point, but it wasn't that it came from divine revelation. We have Jesus speaking in John 17 about what unity means. And I get this for some people that wasn't totally clear, but that shouldn't be a license to go speculate about doctrine and invent new doctrine. Which now brings us to the second epistle of John and, and the third epistle. These are one chapter each. They're very short. The summation of second John is pretty simple. He's once again pushing back very firmly against the doctrine of the docetists who were insisting that Jesus couldn't have possibly lived in a, in a body of flesh and bones and blood that it just appeared that he did. Again, that was philosophy driving doctrine versus doctrine informing philosophy and theology. Yeah. So, it's always important that we get things right. Let's start with doctrine and principles and let that inform our thinking. Which, if you stop and think about this, there, there have been many instances in the past where people have, have taught things, philosophies, ideas, um, made predictions, and they might feel passionately about these. They might be completely behind it and devoted to it and would be willing to give their life for it. Isn't that interesting? Level of conviction doesn't change the truth. Level of, of effort that you put into a cause doesn't dictate what is right and what is wrong. Many of the, the bad deeds that have been done in the history of the world have been done by people who believed with vigor and vim in the cause that they were pushing forward, and it's not always the right cause, hence the need 
to stay rooted in Christ through the appointed means that Christ has established, which is his prophets. So look at verse 1. The elder unto the elect lady and her children. The elect lady is usually a symbol for the church and her children, the offspring. Think about this spiritual rebirth. In a spiritual rebirth setting, if the elect lady is the church and her offspring, her children, that's us, we'll think about Christ, the groom, his bride, the church, symbolically, and we are born again into that beautiful relationship. So somebody who says, I'm going to connect with Christ, but I don't need the church, is totally discounting what the Savior himself and his apostles have taught us about the need for the church that Christ has taken to himself, and it's through the church that we are spiritually reborn into Christ's covenant connection, that relationship that he offers us as our adoptive father, it's through the church that we're baptized into, the mother, that it's that beautiful relationship between the Savior and his church that we find that family feeling of being able to be nurtured, to be forgiven, to be taught, to grow up, to mature, to be on that covenant path. So it's not just a fancy organization that man made, uh, or invented. It's an organization that Christ established. The word ekklesia in Greek means to call out, and that is the source of the word for church in the New Testament. God calls us out into a new organization, a new family. There is an institution. It is called the church. And if you want to be part of God's family, it means an invitation to join his call, to listen to his call, and to join that community of those who've been called out from the world to be in this new family, this new organization. So the, the docetus doctrine is mentioned very directly, very clearly in verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Again, the phrase antichrist here is referring to messaging something incorrect about Jesus. If Christ is this and you define it him separately, you are being against Christ. You are not defining him clearly and appropriately. Which now brings us to the third epistle of John. This one's fascinating on a couple of levels. Look at verse, this has this incredible verse four. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's, that is such a powerful sentiment for any who have, who have been a parent or who have been a leader and have, have infused your life, given your life to helping somebody grow, and then to see them of their own free will and choice walking in the truth, walking on that covenant path, there is no greater joy than to see that happening. We'll stop and think about this. Where is it that Jesus says, my joy is full? It's when he's with the Nephites and the Lamanites, and they bring their children, and they're looking to him with love, 
with reverence, with worship, and he weeps with their children. He says, my joy is full. So stop and think about, we have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth. Well, Jesus, with his adoptive children, spiritually speaking, he showed us how his joy was full. Now, as we work with people, it's not for them to know how we are keeping the commandments or how smart we are. Everything we're doing with them is to try to infuse them with knowledge and inspiration and motivation and connection with God so that they can independently from us walk in the light and in the love of Christ. They can walk in the truth. It ties right back into this thesis statement he has in John, uh, the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 4, we mentioned earlier. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So it's interesting. Maybe some time has gone on and John is now seeing that people have taken seriously this initial letter he wrote where they did enact the light and the love. They believed it. They tried to be more like God. And then they see that he sees this did lead to the them becoming like Jesus. That brings joy. Now, in the second part of the third epistle of John, we see the the very clear signs of the coming apostasy into that early Christian church. So, verse 9, he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. So, there's a local leader in a congregation by the name of Diotrephes, who is not allowing the apostles to come into that congregation and who is rejecting letters and words and teachings from the apostles. Why? Because he loveth to have the preeminence among them. So he receiveth us not. You can picture your, your local bishop or stake president or branch president saying, hey, we got word that uh, one or two of the apostles is going to likely be coming to our, our branch or our ward or our stake this Sunday. We need the elders quorum to bar the parking lot and make sure that he can't get in and make sure we bar the doors. We can't have him or them coming in because they're going to lead you astray. That's what's happening. And here's John, the apostle, saying we're being, we're being shut out from the saints by these local leaders. And that's how the apostasy takes place, is not from external pressure. Because we saw all kinds of external pressure from multiple emperors and Caesars in Rome who were trying to just abuse and torment and torture these Christians to try to get rid of it, and it just seemed to make the church grow stronger. The real apostasy got underway because of internal false doctrines, false teachers, false Christs, people who from within are leading people astray. Hence the need to stay connected with the Lord through his prophets and through the proper channel of of that, uh, of those keys of the priesthood and those revelatory lines that the Lord himself set up. These are not man-made. They're set up by the Lord. This still happens today. I don't think we see people closing church doors, but you may have people in positions of influence who 
just ignore the words that the prophets have to offer or set up uh, ways that their own personal message gets out while not actually forefronting the words of God's chosen leaders, which ultimately is God himself. So this happens today and we just have to be careful and thoughtful. We are in a world full of information. It's always important to understand where are we getting our information from? Is it true? Is it relevant? And is it coming from sources that God himself would approve of? That's a really good reminder, Taylor, is that that was an issue. Diotrephes and what he's doing is an issue in the first century for a congregation of saints. But what you're saying here is we need to remember that you and I, if we're not careful, can be a diatrophies to ourself and to people around us, where maybe we don't even recognize it at times, where we choose not to let the Lord's chosen uh, witnesses, his, his appointed servants, have influence in our lives because we tune our ears to other people in the world. So this story of Diotrephes is not a 2,000-year-old only experience. It, it, it is alive and well today, unfortunately, at big as well as very localized levels, if we're not careful. So the invitation that John would then probably be giving us today would be summarized here in verse 10, wherefore, if I come, I remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So it's that invitation to say, don't be a diatrophies for yourself, but also be careful that you don't shut the door on the prophet's teachings from your loved ones and from the people that you have a stewardship over as a as a, a, a shepherd in whatever calling you may have been given. Or casting out people who are trying to listen to the words of the prophets. That's just really a disaster. Which now brings us to the, the general epistle of Jude, another uh, widely believed to be a half-brother of Jesus, which would make him a brother of James. So Jude's general epistle is interesting because especially in the place that it comes in our Bible, it's, it's as if it's a counterweight or a countermeasure to make sure people don't swing a pendulum too far to one side. We just got through talking about how God is love and how God is filled with this love. Well, Jude now comes on the scene and in his general epistle, He's speaking to a group of people who apparently believe that God is filled with so much love and is love to the degree where he has 100% tolerance for sin for and for wrongdoing. Everything. It's actually when people use the word freedom. Now, there are some countries in the world where that this word becomes almost a religious term like freedom. And freedom is important. Jesus wants to give us freedom and has made it possible to have freedom. But freedom doesn't mean without constraints, with no boundaries. Like if my body was totally free, if I had no boundaries, I actually couldn't even be a body because my particles would just flow out everywhere. And it turns out to be fully free means to be constrained by divine law. 
And so there is a misunderstanding that the love and freedom that Jesus offers us, which is liberating, isn't, oh, I no longer have any responsibilities to myself, any need to be disciplined to God. I don't need to be a disciple. I can do whatever. And God gave me a blank check to, to be whatever I want and do whatever I want without consequences. And, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll fall into this trap of saying, well, well God loves everybody. That's true. God does love everybody. And because he loves everybody, what does he do? He gives us laws. He gave his son. He gives us these commandments, which are invitations. They're not stifling uh, uh, rules and regulations. Commandments are an invitation to become more like God. And Christ showed us that keeping commandments is actually a delight. It's a pleasure. It's, that's where we find our great joy. That's actually where we truly discover love and freedom. Exactly. And in the book of Jude, he's showing what happens when a group of people take that doctrine and ignore the other attributes of God and say, well, because God loves me, he's going to forgive me anyway, and so I can do whatever I want and become whatever I want, and he's going to save me. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not about just a destination. True salvation is to have complete freedom to act in all of the appropriate ways, which comes with those bounds, those boundaries that are eternally set. And God teaches us those through his commandments and through the example of his son. Well, now in the book of Jude, what you're going to see is, look at verse 4. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are people who are coming in using the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, God's goodness, God's light, God's love, to preach this doctrine that you can now live a lascivious life, you can do whatever you want to do, turn all those arrows inward on what's in it for me, what can I get out of this, rather than turning them to how can I love God, how can I love my fellow men and women more. And then he gives example after example of people who lived that doctrine and got destroyed. Suffered serious consequences. Yeah. You can read all those stories for yourself, but they are in Jude's time, the Jewish listeners at this time would have been very familiar with these stories out of the Old Testament. Yeah, so you get you get verse five, the people in Egypt who are destroyed, verse six, the angels who kept not their first estate who are destroyed, verse seven, Sodom and Gomorrah, these people who defiled themselves, they got destroyed. And so it's this invitation to us to not not try to separate God's attributes out into separate beings, but to let God in all of his light and love and mercy and grace also be the God of justice and the God of judgment that he is, because otherwise his mercy and his love don't have the same power. They don't have the same value as if he is exactly who he is all of these attributes coming together, and quite frankly, the power here is that's who we're trying to become like. So, 
it doesn't mean you stop loving somebody if they don't do what they're supposed to do. You always love them, but you may not necessarily be able to trust them. You may not be able to give them more stewardship to, to oversee because you can't trust them. So God has given us these things. We don't need to be afraid of him. Perfect love casteth out all fear. That is not the motivating factor that Jude's trying to portray. He's trying to correct a false doctrine that has started to spread in the early church that God loves me so much I can, I can enjoy the, the works of the flesh and then afterwards he'll save me. It, it, that is not truth and that won't lead to ultimate joy and ultimate happiness. He concludes his letter with, I think, uh, something quite uplifting where he invites people to think about the temple as a metaphor for the community of Jesus. And this is something that has been a clarion call among modern day prophets, uh, highlighted by uh, President Hunter many years ago in the 1990s. But continuing today, we see this explosion of growth in terms of the building of temples, which is a symbol that the community of God is growing, strengthening, expanding. And we are invited to model our lives, to have a template or a pattern, patterned after our lives should be patterned after God and temples are templates or patterns for how we can be aligned to God. Powerful. So let's finish with verse 25. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. It's a powerful closure, this, this giving God the glory. It's the arrows are turned heavenward and outward not inward. So, as we conclude, we want to come back to Sister Wendy Watson Nielsen's inspiring question and the invitation that we would give uh, from her would be, think about this this week. What would a holy disciple of Christ do? In, in whatever setting whatever situation you find yourself in, just ask yourself that question. And based on our, our discussion from John and Jude of the attributes of who God is, answer that question, what would a holy disciple of Christ do? And may the Lord bless us in those efforts to grow up in that uh, gospel analogy of being a, an adoptive son or daughter of Jesus Christ taking on his attributes and find joy in that journey of discipleship is our prayer for all of us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Mm -hmm.